0: you would, uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. Um, We'll we'll take a pause in the book of Acts for the month of December, and then we'll come back to it uh, in January. So we'll just get into the first part of chapter 13 this morning. Uh, If you're able, would you stand with me as we read from God's word? pay careful attention. This is the word of the living God. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse one. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent off by the out by the Holy Spirit they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, "'You son of the devil!' The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth. Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth? Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit, who inspired Luke to record these things uh, for us and has preserved them throughout the ages, that the Holy Spirit would lead us now into all understanding, that we would receive this word with faith and with love, lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. And in all things, help us to see Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen. There's an old story that's told about a life-saving station that was set up on a dangerous sea coast uh, many years ago. Uh, some of the some of the men in the community recognized that this was a, a dangerous area along the coast and there were lots and lots of shipwrecks, so they decided to form a kind of a group. And they had this little shack, it wasn't much to speak of. It was just kind of a place to bring people in, a place to sleep overnight if you were on the night watch, looking out for shipwrecks and uh, because of the effectiveness of this life saving station, the place became quite famous for these men keeping constant watch over the sea and rescuing those who were in danger as a result of the the fame of this place, kind of word began to spread, and, and many people wanted to be associated with the life saving station so they started giving. Time and started uh, contributing their talents and started giving money to support this important work. They bought new boats, they got new crews recruited, and they established formal training sessions so that everybody would be equipped to do the work. Membership in this group continued to grow, and uh, some of the membership said you know, this little shack that we stay in, we really could make it a little bit nicer. You know, if we're gonna be serving in this way, let's get some nice beds, let's kind of fix it up a little bit. And so they did. Uh, Their equipment was updated, the building was updated, it became a better place to welcome survivors. No more emergency cots, (laughs) now they had beds and some nice furniture and a newly decorated building. Now, those who were involved in this effort, they liked being together. They enjoyed the gathering, and so they began spending more time there as kind of a social outlet. They met there regularly, uh, and when they did, it was, it was very clear how much they loved one another. They would greet one another, hug one another, share about things that are going on in their lives. But as that increased, the work and the desire to go out into the ocean, and to rescue those who had been uh, shipwrecked, kind of decreased so they started to hire these tasks out to other lifeboat crews to go out into the ocean and rescue those who had been shipwrecked. About this time, there was a large ship that had wrecked off of the coast, and so the hired crews went out. They began to bring into the life-saving station boatloads of all of the people who had been on this ship that had wrecked, from the kind of upper-class passengers all the way down to the deckhand, kind of all manner of ethnicity bringing bringing them into this life-saving station. Now, all of a sudden, this nicely decorated, nicely furnished building with these nice beds and these people who were members of the life-saving station, now all of a sudden this place became chaotic. The plush carpet got dirty. The furniture became wet from all of the survivors uh, sitting on it and, and trying to set up stations where they could help them. Uh, So later, the property committee decided to set up a shower outside the house so that those who were brought in as survivors could be cleaned up before they came into the life-saving station, you know, just to keep it nice. At the next meeting of this group, there was kind of a division in the membership. Many of them felt like they should stop going out and saving people who had been shipwrecked. You know, that was what we started as, but now it's something different. Other people can do that some felt like that was the core of the mission they had begun with and that they needed to keep doing that and so as you can imagine they split the group that wanted to keep up the life-saving work they went a little further up the coast built their own building began this life-saving effort of rescuing people from shipwreck and as you can imagine as time went on a, a similar pattern occurred They made the building nicer. They stopped saving so much and started just becoming more of a community and so forth until you had maybe five or six of these life-saving stations up and down this particularly dangerous coast. The writer of this story says that if you visit this seacoast today, you'll find a number of adequate meeting places with ample parking and plush carpeting. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. And why do I take the time to tell this lengthy story about a life saving station on the coast? Well, it's a good reminder to us that the church has been established by God as a life saving station. The the church has been given a mission, the church has been uh, established with mission work in its DNA. In its very design, God has called the church to be a lighthouse, to be a light to the nation. To the nations, to be the place where those who are lost outside of Jesus Christ can hear the good news of life and eternal hope in Him and be brought in, and be brought into safety and refuge in Christ. And yet, like many other institutions, it's very easy and all too common to drift from that mission to enjoy certain parts of the church's life. That are a blessing and a benefit, and get distracted from the core mission that Jesus has entrusted to us. And so we are often in need of reminding, often in need of renewal in the mission that Jesus has given to his church. In Acts 13, you don't see a drift from the mission, you see a clear picture of that mission being uh, where the church is committed to that mission. The church is carrying out that mission of bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see in the church in Antioch in Acts 13, the missionary DNA of the church at work. Let's talk just for a moment about the missionary DNA of the church. And then I want to look at four important facts about the mission of the church. The mission impulse of the church, what we're calling the missionary DNA, has been built into the church from its beginning. And I don't mean just at Pentecost. I mean all the way back under the old covenant. Missionary impulse, missionary drive, the mission of the church has been there from the beginning. Consider the command given to Adam and Eve. Multiply, fill the earth before sin, that meant that they would, uh, evangelism was just procreation, if you will. Fill the earth with others who love God, who are made in his image. After the fall and sin, there's this need for this good news of a savior to come, to go out to the nations. And so God makes a covenant with Abraham and tells Abraham that through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed and that nations will come to uh, God's people and find Salvation. There's a missionary impulse even in Abraham. Or in Moses, God tells the people that they are a royal priesthood. They are the people through whom God will reach the nations. They are in some sense a mediator between the nations and the living God. They are called to be a light to the nations. So the people will stream to Israel in order to know the one true God. Under David, God makes a covenant with him that one of David's descendants will be a king forever who will reign on the throne of David forever and all the nations will come to him. Jesus, after his death and resurrection, says to his disciples, go, make disciples of all nations, uh, teaching them, baptizing them. And then by the time you get to the new heavens and the new earth, what do we see, uh, what types of people do we see gathered around the throne of God and of the Lamb? We see people, all tribes, all nations, uh, all languages who have been brought into salvation through Jesus Christ by the work of the church, carrying out this missionary DNA that has been given to them from the beginning. The church has a missionary DNA, a design for mission all the way from the beginning. And you see this especially uh, in the in the book of Acts in the church at Antioch. Uh, the church of Jerusalem certainly had this impulse of sending out, of going out, and the Lord led them through persecution and other means to, to expand out from Jerusalem, to bring others in, and we've seen the gospel expand further and further out from Jewish territories into Gentile t- territories bringing in these non-Jewish groups into the, the one church of Jesus Christ. But Antioch, the church in Antioch, really is kind of presented to us as this exemplary missions-sending church. They, they, are, they are well-suited to this mission, primed to be a witnessing and missionary church. Uh, notice just a couple of things about this church. Luke tells us uh, some of the people who are there, he says that they are well-equipped for this mission. They have prophets and teachers, uh, including Saul and Barnabas among them. Saul had already been commissioned by Jesus to go. Uh, He'd been in Antioch for a while teaching and, and presumably prepping and training the church to continue to carry out its mission. Not only are they equipped, but the church kind of has this built-in international flavor to it from the beginning. Uh, This is the first church where uh, Jesus' people are called, where the church is called Christians, and it's the first church where you have this Jewish-Gentile mix in one body. Notice some of the international flavor you have here. Uh, You have Barnabas, who's from, uh, from the island of Cyprus. You have Simeon, who was called Niger, probably African, probably black. Uh, Lucius of Cyrene, also North African, also probably uh, black. Menean, grown up with, who grew up with royalty. Herod the Tetrarch, who was the the bad Herod when Jesus was born. So you have this, this international flavor to this church. So this is a church that's already kind of bought into the vision of the church as a missionary agency. They worship God, and as they worship they send and they serve to bring others into the refuge of Jesus Christ. And it really should be no different today. Uh, the church of Jesus has been given marching orders, and we're still in between the first and the second coming of Jesus. Those marching orders are still ours to be much like the church here in Antioch. There's still people who need to hear that the grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ. There's still people who need to hear the good news that there is forgiveness in Him. Uh, But we often lose sight. We often become uh, complacent. We often become comfortable and inward-focused, much like the life-saving station, focused on preserving what we have rather than on going out with the mission that Christ has entrusted to us. And yet to know and to love Christ and to love people is to desire uh, that others would know Jesus as well. The two go hand in hand, to know Christ and to make him known. Let's look at some of the characteristics of this mission of the church that are built into her DNA. Uh, we see four, four characteristics here uh, just that we'll go through just briefly. Uh, first, we see that the mission of the church is fueled... By dependence upon the Lord. It's fueled by dependence upon the Lord. Uh, Notice Luke tells us in verse 2 that the church is worshiping. They're gathered. They're offering praise to God. They're glorifying Him. They're also (laughs) fasting. They've taken a break from eating and drinking. There's different ways to do it, whether it's all day or just a portion of the day. doesn't matter. Why are they fasting? What's the significance of this? Well, well, fasting in the scriptures is kind of a tangible you feel it uh, it's a tangible way of putting aside kind of normal habits normal normal routines of eating and drinking, and concentrating on what the Lord might have you to do seeking god's will or perhaps particularly pleading for something significant in prayer. I have a friend who for many years, he and some of his family members have Uh, fasted on Mondays to pray for another family member who is in need of God's grace it's a way of acknowledging we don't live on bread alone we depend upon the Lord for all things and here the church is gathered they're fasting they're seeking God's will in prayer the Holy Spirit directly leads them to send out Saul and Barnabas for this mission they are fueled by dependence upon the Lord. But that doesn't, that doesn't just mean you pray and you fast and you worship in order to carry out the mission. It means that the work of missions, the work of evangelism, of inviting people to trust Jesus, is not up to us. And yet the Lord at the same time is pleased to use you in this mission. He doesn't need us, but this is the way he has designed it that through you, the message of Jesus will be proclaimed. But the effectiveness of that mission is not resting upon our shoulders. They're praying, they're fasting, they're worshiping because they recognize that if there will be any success in this mission, it will be because the Lord causes the increase. Are we operating with that view of depending upon the Lord, depending upon his strength, in His power and obeying Him out of faith in His ability to do what we cannot do? Or are we operating out of our own strength? Do we find ourselves puffed up in pride, thinking we've done something great for Jesus? We, we are the ones that He needs on our team, and, and we've done all the, the work, and it's up to us that others are coming because of something we've done. Are we puffed up in pride rather than giving glory to God? Or sometimes when we depend on our own strength, we often find ourselves timid and, and not acting in faith because we think, this is up to me, and, and I'm scared because what if I fail? What if I say the wrong thing? What if I offend somebody? And we have to believe, just as the early church did, that we are dependent upon the Lord, <coughs> that he is pleased to use us, and he will when we act, out and when we act in faith and obedience to him. Jesus works through secondary means. You're sharing the word. You're witnessing to Christ's resurrection. You're praying, even, for people to come to know Christ. You're demonstrating the love of Jesus in tangible, practical ways. All of it is undergirded by dependence upon the Lord. Notice, though, it's not just fueled by dependence upon the Lord, but also focused on the word of the Lord. Verse 5, when they arrive on Cyprus, they go to the different towns, different synagogues of the Jews. What do they do? They proclaim the word of the Lord. This proconsul, uh, Sergius Paulus, he invites Saul and Barnabas to come because he wants to hear the word of the Lord. When he's finally converted at the end, he sees this miraculous deed, but he's astonished, not at the deed, but at the teaching of the Lord. The mission of the church Fueled by dependence upon the Lord, is focused on the word of the Lord, upon the message. Uh, This ought to be very freeing to us. As as believers who desire to share Christ with others, you only have to learn one message. (laughs) You only have to learn one set of truths that inform that message that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners to rescue sinners from the punishment that they deserve, that we deserve for our sins. That in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness for all who believe, that there is righteousness for all who have trusted in him, that there is grace and salvation all through the work of Jesus. It's, It's like you get to study one thing for your whole life and become an expert on one thing for that opportunity to share who Christ is. The mission of the church is focused on the word of the Lord summarized in the grace of the gospel. It's a story told about uh, a man named Paul Koistra, who used to be the coordinator for our missions agency for the PCA, uh, Mission to the World. Uh, if you ever heard uh, Paul preach, he, he only had, I think I only heard two or three passages that he ever preached on. It. I think he preached on them over and over again, but it always felt like the message that he was preaching was the same. The grace of God in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins in him, and the the compulsion that the church has to take that message out. And somebody once asked him, "Uh, Paul, why do you always preach about grace? And his response was, there is no other message. There is no other message that the church has been entrusted with except the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ who died, who rose again from the dead, And who calls all people everywhere to repent, to believe, to be united to him and in him have salvation and all the blessings of the new covenant. The mission of the church is focused on the word of the Lord. You don't have to keep up. You don't have to figure out uh, a response to every new trend that comes around, although there's wisdom in that. Uh, You don't have to adjust the message for every new era. You do have to figure out how to communicate it differently differently. But we have one message, the message of grace in Jesus Christ. Sometimes, though, the message of grace is met with opposition. And we might think, this is such good news. Who, who would not want to receive this good news? Why would anybody oppose the message of God's grace in Jesus Christ? And yet we know that there, is, there are often challenges to the message. And those challenges can some kind, sometimes discourage the work and often invites a rebuke. Notice the the part of the story where Saul, or he's called Paul now because he's in Gentile territory, and that was his kind of Roman name. Paul and Barnabas arrive in Paphos, and they meet with the, the governor of that area, Sergius Paulus. He invite, He's a man of intelligence. He invites them to come share the word of the Lord, but he's got this companion with him. Uh, It's got funny names, Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus or son of Joshua, or Elemus, which is kind of an Arabic word, which means magician. He's a false prophet. He's Jewish. He's some sort of magician. Um, There's some sort of strange kind of dark arts, if you will, for you Harry Potter fans going on here. Uh, And he is trying to influence this governor, Sergius Paulus, against receiving the gospel. He wants, uh, Sergius Paulus wants to hear Paul and Barnabas. He invites them so that he can hear the word of the Lord. Perhaps the good news that they've been spreading has kind of made its way to Cyprus, and and he's interested. He's spiritually interested. But for some reason, he's got this magician. Maybe he thinks there's power in that, and uh, and this magician has undue influence over him. And there's opposition. Notice it says, verse 8, Elymas the magician opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Paul responds. Paul says, dear friend, Bar-Jesus, why don't you listen to these kind words that I'm about to tell you? Is that what he says? No. <laughs> Paul's he's, he's pretty blunt. He's fairly direct with uh, Bar-Jesus, Elemus, whatever you want to call him. Calls him the son of the devil. Uh, calls him... Uh, the enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, making crooked the straight paths of the Lord and then he blinds him, much like Paul himself was blinded when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus Now let's talk about this for a second uh, because I think it's fair to say that we, we live in a day and particularly the, the younger generation growing up and probably some of my generation as well uh, We do not like confrontation. We certainly don't like being unkind. If there is kind of a cardinal sin today, it's the sin of being unkind. There's some, obviously, we want you to be kind as fruit of the Spirit. We don't need to dismiss that. But the way that that kind of manifests itself today is you don't confront error. You don't call a spade a spade. And you, and you certainly, if you're going to, uh, you almost do it apologetically as though truth is not really as important as making somebody else kind of feel comfortable with what they believe, even if it's, if it's in error or in contradiction to the Bible. Uh, Saul certainly did not live in that generation. <laughs> Paul Paul did not have any qualms about this, but there's a reason behind that, two reasons, I think, that kind of help us think about how this applies today one is Paul is an apostle. Uh, he's, he's, he's in a different position than you and I are, in a sense. And his ability to see into a situation and to speak, uh, I believe, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit into this situation. So there's there's a difference from that apostolic period to now. I don't think that this verse gives us the authority to look at somebody intently and say, you're a son of the devil. And I mean, you know, maybe not meant to be given as a one-to-one example for us to follow. Um, But at the same time, Paul's interaction with this magician highlights the fact that there is sometimes a need for strong rebuke when there is error, and particularly in this case where you have what appears to be kind of demonic activity behind this magician in his words as he opposes the gospel. So Saul's not just being mean, he's acting the part of the true prophet against the false prophet and warning this false prophet of his errors and at the same time demonstrating to this governor, Sergius Paulus, that the truth is worth listening to. It's easy for us, I believe, to get discouraged in the mission when there are challenges, when there are hindrances, when there are walls thrown up, you talk to somebody about Christ, or you ask them how you can pray for them, or whatever you do, and, and there's, there's a, a roadblock. I don't want to hear it. Uh, I've heard this before, or all Christians are hypocrites, or, or whatever the, the comeback is, the opposition to it. It's easy to get discouraged from that, and, and there's different ways to respond to that discouragement. Maybe we focus on something else and not on the main message, or maybe we change the message a little bit, soften it up some, thinking that'll make it more palatable if we change the message and soften the truth, compromise in some way, or simply give up in order to be liked or to accommodate those who are against it. The work of the mission of the church is fraught with challenges that can discourage the work, and yet... I think we see in this passage ultimately that the mission of the church is full of hope. It's a mission that is full of hope because Jesus is king. It's full of hope because Jesus is king. By his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his reigning and ruling over all things as the king of all kings, one day returning to establish all righteousness, that gives us hope hope because Jesus is king. He is at work through the witness of his church, carrying out this missionary DNA that has been given to them. And we see this in the passage, I think, uh, specifically in the fact that at the end of the passage, this man, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, believes. He's astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the first time you have a Roman official of high power, a governor of this area, who is converted. I think Luke is, is reminding us that Jesus is king above all earthly powers. He is king of the uneducated, the lowly who come to him, and he is king of the highly intelligent. It says that he's an educated man, a man of intelligence, and the earthly powerful come to him. Jesus is above all of them. He is king, ruling and reigning over all of his people and over all of his creation. And because of that, we can have hope because Jesus is at work through our our feeble attempts done in faith, uh, through our prayers, through our efforts to love people with the love of Christ, to speak the truth in love, And to to not shy away from that when it's especially difficult, but to be faithful to the Lord uh, and to submit our lives and our consciences to him. The mission is full of hope because Jesus is king and he will not fail in his mission that he has entrusted to the church. Jesus has established his church from beginning to end as a missionary institution. It's built in. To the DNA of the church. We worship the God who made us, the God who redeemed us through Jesus Christ. And as we worship and depend upon him, we go out with the good news that Jesus has secured salvation for all who will come to him in faith and repentance, trusting that as king, Jesus rules over his work so that we not end up like the life saving station loving one another well, enjoying our comfort so that all those who are shipwrecked keep drowning. Would you pray with me?